First Thessalonians chapter two, beginning in verse 13, Paul continues in his letter. This is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, the region around Jerusalem. Since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to gather, uh, to be uh, your people gathered in a place, uh, to continue just to submit ourselves to the scriptures, to allow them to shape the way that we think, the way that we live. Um, and we pray that today would just be another one of those. Um, God, that you would help me to faithfully teach, that you would give us ears to hear, um, and that even you would help clear up even any stuff that's going on within me um, so that I'm moderately listenable. God, be with us, though in the midst of all this. Um, it's been so evident that you are thus far, and so we just ask that you continue to make your presence known as we hear from you today. And we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, only three verses, and uh, I'll just say out the get-go, I know that the back, three, the back two verses are where you really have your questions. You wanna give your attention. Wrath constantly filling up is... Paul, a Jewish guy, anti-Semitic? Like, what's going on here? We'll get there. Um, but first, we gotta start with verse 13. And, and what I wanna do to kind of help set up this is, is, it's difficult because there's a key dynamic that Paul gets at that kind of builds out and helps shape what is he getting at here. And it all comes right in the middle of the passage. And it's that little phrase there, in you who believe. If you're a circle in your Bible kind of person or taking notes, it's that line, in you who believe right there. Um, or as it can be simply translated, you believers, that is kind of the sandwich that he's building all of this around. When you look through the New Testament, the word Christian as an identity marker for, for followers of Jesus is, is actually quite rare. The much more common is that of disciple or apprentice, or on the other side, the far, far more common is the language of brothers or sisters is the way that we talk about fellow followers of Jesus with. And yet, one of the other key ones that Paul in particular loves to use far more than Christian is, is believers. And so by, by focusing our attention on his use right here of believers right in the middle of the passage, What's a helpful way to understand what's going on in this passage is this is kind of like a little believer sandwich where you've got believers and what does it mean to be a believer? And he's sandwiching around that what he's talking about when he talks about a believer, which is really, really helpful, specifically talking through some of like the de-churching age and what we're going on is even in the midst of 40 million people that have walked out of the church, 64% of Americans still identify as like Christian, as a believer, and so even in the midst of the dissent, there's, there's still an overwhelming majority of people that are like, oh yeah, team Jesus, me, right? But when you begin, and many of you have experienced this, you begin to talk with people who identify themselves as a Christian and you begin to either talk about what they actually do believe or how they live in light of that, you just find how distant and disorienting it can be. I know that I, I'm 
not on them, but in talking to some of you guys, it's been so interesting to find um, on like dating apps. It's like you'll go out and say, oh, they, they, identify, they're, they say they're a Christian too. And you're like, swipe, which direct? Up, down. It changes all the time. Um, thank you, right. Uh, but you're like, okay, cool. Like, they, they identify as a Christian. I'm a Christian. Let's, let's, I don't know what we do anymore, but let's get together and let's see where this thing goes. Um, and you begin to talk with them and you just begin to find like, oh, we're, we're talking about two completely different things when we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? Or you, you find this on the internet. There's people that are like Christian, whatever, you know, posting account. And this stuff that they say, you're just like, are we same team really, right? Like you and me, we're on the, right? So there's this weird kind of 64% of people identify as a quote unquote a believer, but what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And so this passage is one of many that address this, but in, in addressing this, I think it's just helpful for us to be able to receive what Paul's doing here is he's kind of giving his framework for what a, the marks of a model believer, the marks of a genuine faith. Now, this doesn't mean that this is all that there are, but I think he's giving some key bedrock little pieces here in the kind of sandwich that he's putting together in just these three verses. How are we doing so far? So right there in the middle, you've got that kind of in you believers, right is the middle. And then there's kind of three verbs that I think he's kind of building a lot of this on. And that is this verb, you received. The next one, you welcomed. And then in verse 14, you became imitators. So you received, you welcomed, you became imitators, you imitated. What does it mean to be a believer? I honestly think Paul's bedrock definition that he's giving revolves around those three terms. You received, you welcomed, you imitated. So let's look at you received first. Paul says, we constantly thank God because when you received the word of God that you heard from us. Now, I'm not sure, depending on the context that you grew up in, some like evangelical kind of Christian spaces like me, when we think about what it means to like receive the word of God, um, the immediate thing that comes to mind for most of us is just like just reading the Bible, right? Or to receive the word of God in the sense of the gospel is like you did the altar call thing or you prayed a sinner's prayer or maybe you got baptized. And, and I'm not here to, to shut down on any of those. Definitely not baptism. Maybe more so like the sinner's prayer is like a rote thing you have to pray. But what's interesting here is when Paul says you received, and you're gonna Greek geek out with me for a moment here, is Paul is utilizing actually a technical term. He's not just using received in the sense of like you accepted something. He's using a technical term that comes out of the world of, for, for Jewish rabbis and out of the world of the Greek, it comes out of the world of philosophers. So think about Socrates, right? Socrates has a body of teachings. He has a particular philosophical method is the language that they would have used that Socrates would raise up little apprentices in his philosophical framework that he would give them his body of teachings and they would then participate within the Socratic method or the Socratic tradition as continuing in and then handing off to others, right? Similarly, you think about a rabbi. We'll use Hillel as an example because he invented the sandwich, it's true. It's 100% true. Um, right? Yeah, right? Come on. He's right here. Isaac knows. Um, he invented the sandwich. Anyway, Rabbi Hillel, you just think about this. As a rabbi, what he would have had is a body of teaching, something that he was always talking about. He would have had a way of life that he carried himself. And as he rose up, apprentices or disciples underneath him, he would hand off to them his yoke is what it could be called, 
like a, like a, a, bear, a burden put on them, or his, his word, the rabbi's word. It was his tradition that any little disciples then that would follow after him would receive and carry out that tradition as what they embodied, as what they taught, as what they, how they carried themselves out. And so they were, their main task was to be faithful to the tradition. Somebody saying he's you know, part of the Socratic method or whatever and then isn't following Socrates' teaching, right, would be, would be an issue. Similarly, someone saying, oh, I'm part of the tribe of Rabbi Hillel, I'm part of his tradition, but then not holding the interpretations that he does, it would be problematic. Why in the world does this matter? This is the framework of what Paul's getting at when he says, you received from us the word of God. The, the reception that he's talking about is not you came forward and prayed a prayer, and not even that you get, got baptized, although that's part of it. It is you received the word of God as a particular body of teachings, and not just a way of belief, but a way of life that you entered into as a community. And so this, like, we're very anti-tradition in our day and age, but there's just no way around it. When Paul thinks about what does it mean to be a Christian, you are someone who has received the word of God as the particular tradition that you ascribe to, that you've received is the language, that you carry and take with you. And so what does it mean then to receive what he calls the word of God? Now I'll give you the like TLDR and then I'll give you the more built out version, okay? So the, T, the too long don't read version of this is what does it mean to receive the word of God is to receive the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament together. Now, why I say this is the too long don't read is because um, when Paul's saying this, you receive the word from God, what he's reminding them of is not we showed up and we distributed Bibles to you guys, right? Because at this point in time, all that was there was the Hebrew scriptures. He's writing right now in 50 AD, the first thing that would become what we now know of as the New Testament. So when he says you receive the word of God, he says, as you heard from us, what he's calling back to is what Paul and the apostles would have done for their ministry was going from town to town, bringing together the kind of oral traditions and stories that came out of the gospels, the teachings of Jesus, the works of Jesus. There'd be theology and development of what it means that all of this is true, that he is the son of God. There'd be moral teaching as part of that. This is what it means to follow him. And then this would also include creeds and hymns and prayers like the Lord's prayer or um, let's see, uh, creeds like at the beginning of Colossians 1 or Philippians chapter 3 or to go back to chapter one of Philippians, many argue that this is exactly what Paul's reminding them of in chapter one, verses nine and 10, which again, you'll see right behind me just to remind you. When he says, they report what kind of reception we had from you. And then there's this little catchphrase that most go, oh, this was part of Paul's tradition that he handed down from them. Turning from, turn, excuse me, turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God to wait for his son from heaven who raised us from, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So this is one of those little things where when Paul says the word of God, it's the tradition, it's little, little summary statements of the gospel like this. This is what he's talking about. So it's the gospel, it's, it's moral teachings, it's theology, it's the stories of Jesus, it's guidance for the church. All of that is what he calls the word of God. And so what's interesting is, is through most of the early like, apostolic time when you've got Paul and Peter and these guys kicking around is the word of God was just whatever the apostles said when they were here last time. But as Paul begins to kind of get older and as we begin, to the church, early church begins to realize we're, a, we're gonna become a multi-generational thing. We can't just like, hey, remember what Paul said. 
what ends up happening is those letters start being held as a reception of the word of God, as well as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their development of the gospel stories. Luke, as he puts together Acts, is going, okay, that is now the word of God. If you don't believe me, 2 Thessalonians, the real one, not just me misquoting it. Paul says this, so then brothers and sisters, this is towards the end of his second letter that he writes them a few years later. So then brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught. What's he talking about? Oh, the gospel, how to follow Jesus, how to be a disciple, right? And then he says, whether by what we said or by what we wrote. And so for them, he says, remember, I'm so grateful for the way that you received the word of God as you heard it from us. And so for after the age of Paul and Peter, then what we say is, as you, as you read from us, as you read from us, as you heard the stories that Paul, when he would do, or Hebrews doing all this incredible work looking at Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. The Old Testament continues to be the word of God as messianic literature pointing us to Jesus. That the New Testament writings and the story, this is how we now receive the word of God. So again, the too long don't read is the Bible. And yet what Paul's getting at is a far more nuanced view that then leads us to why this book. It's this apostolic tradition that's been handed down to us. And so again, the tradition stuff, I, I, don't, I, I can just, I, I even feel it in some of you guys. I can see it in your shoulders talking about tradition. But this is, the reality is, is that, that there is in many ways, like there is a right way <clears throat> to live as a Christian. There is a right belief to hold as a Christian. And it, it, is, it is framed by the, the word of God is what Paul says. This is what it means to receive that tradition. And so what that means is then all of our questions that we have, there's a freedom that comes in, in receiving a tradition. Like you just think about like, you know, um, what's a good like family recipe from your grandma? Like a traditional recipe that one of you guys have. Lasagna. I'm so hungry now. Or chocolate chip cookies, lasagna. I've got, I'm thinking right now about my, my grandma has these um, chicken and noodles that she does. It's like this gravy that you put on a bed of mashed potatoes. And the tradition that's been developed in the family is first, you diagonally cut a slice of Wonder Bread that you put at the bottom, and then you put the mashed potatoes on top, and then you put, right? Now here's the thing. What you receive in receiving Uncle Brent's tradition and the traditional way of making that meal is a lot of the guesswork of, of how to make a meal is taken care of. The receiving of the, the lasagna tradition is... You don't have to bump and, and mess your way through trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What do we believe? What do we, we don't have to reinvent Christianity with each new generation or with each new person. And so what that means is there's a freedom. Or, or you maybe use the example of like with sports and you think about a soccer you know, field, right? That there's clear in play and out of play. The whole point of that is not like rules and all the tradition of how to play soccer is not to make the game boring. It's to make it actually be fun. Or you think about the, the fence, you know, that you put around a kid's, like, park. You, you know, go to the park with your kids, and you've got slides and things that they can do. It's very easy for my three-year-old to think that, like, the parking lot is part of it. And that's what's so nice at certain, you know, playgrounds that have a fence. Why? It's so that Arlo can play more free. He doesn't have to worry about going out of bounds. And so part of receiving the tradition means it's the freedom of receiving that the apostles and the church, in particular, the, the, the scriptures, that God has given us all that we need to walk within faith and to walk within obedience. The language of this that came out of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the gift that we don't need to appeal to anybody else. Scripture can guide us in what it means to flourish as the people of Jesus. And not just to flourish, what to believe as the people of Jesus.
And so part of Sola Scriptura also means that like in an age that we're like, woo, about like deconstructing all like, you know, tradition, is what we have here is like, the best way that I can think about this is, is through the word of God, like an uppercase tradition, uppercase T tradition, that allows us to investigate and look at and consider all lowercase T traditions within the church or outside of it. So you got purity culture that some of y'all grew up in. That's a lowercase T tradition. That's a particular model of belief and behavior that then you bring to the uppercase T tradition of the word of God and you go, okay, there's a couple of things here, but there's a lot of stuff that's just garbo that needs to go, right? Or, or if you were raised in a Pentecostal tradition, Roman Catholic tradition, Eastern Orthodox, your, your collective, we have our own little tiny, you know, collect, like it's called Discover Doctrine, right? It's our membership. That is the lowercase t tradition of collective church. And the whole goal is not that you don't have lowercase t traditions, like no to Lent or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. The whole point is we're always asking, what are the questions? We're submitting it to the uppercase t tradition. This is so that just, just notice when Paul's like, what does it mean to be a believer? This is what he's talking about. The reception of a particular way of life and way of believing as shaped by the scriptures. And, and that doesn't mean that like your experience of God, we talk, people talk about like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I totally get that. And yet there, there is a particular framework and model of what it means to be within that relationship, just like marriage. Just like any any covenanting relationship will always have some boundary markers of what it means for us to do this faithfully. And so part of receiving scriptures is receiving the gift of knowing, of receiving and having that. So as part of our de-churching moment happens, like this is why the, the statistics around biblical illiteracy are just like, oh yeah, that's how we got here. Is we have just, we as a community and as, as an American thing, we have turned the Bible into something to quote at our leisure and to misquote very, very oftenly, just finding, like, let me nitpick the verse that fits into whatever I'm trying to say, as the way the D.A. Carson puts it, is we have given ourselves over to mastering the scriptures rather than being mastered by them. Getting them to do what we want them to do rather than allowing them to shape and guide us for us to receive them. And so part of this is growing in that, both the practice of reading scripture, but also the posture in submitting ourselves to the scriptures as the tradition that guides us, which leads us into the next one. So verb one, to be a believer is to be a receiver of the word of God. Next, he says, the word of God that you heard from us, you, second verb, you welcomed it. So Paul moves from talking about the true believer, uh, the mark of a model, faithful, genuine believer, as one who has received a tradition, to now he moves to a new metaphor of receiving it as a guest. You welcomed. It's language of hospitality. So you just think about like the last time you had somebody over to your house, your apartment, or you were, you were just hosting. You think about the preparation, the excitement leading up to it. Hopefully, hopefully it's a, it's a, it's a welcomed guest and not you know like Kramer busting in or something. <laughs> but like you think about the preparation that goes into it. There's excitement whenever we have people coming over. My kids are always sitting on the, the back of the couch, looking out of the window, waiting for them to get there. You know, you get the music on, candles or the lighting is taken care of. You get the meal prepped, you get the good dishes down, you go out to get the bottle of wine. Like you get everything ready. Why? Because you want to receive them, welcome them well. And so Paul is saying it's not simply just the receiving a tradition. What, I, what, what identified you guys was your heart of, of welcoming, like a, like a welcome guest, the word of God into your lives. 
And so the, the language that you'll see used, I think I have three examples of kind of what Paul gets at when he talks about um, the welcome. You can go to the next one. Yes, okay. So back at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, Paul almost says the exact same thing. He says, you welcome the message, right? Just what we just read. And here he kind of gives us, what does it mean to welcome the message? Oh, you welcomed it with joy excitement and celebration that it's finally here. Later on in 2 Thessalonians, he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. So when he thinks back about how they welcomed the word of God, it's not just they received it with joy, but they, they honored it. They held it up. It was, it was a position of like, yes, this is you standing for reading as the, as the very lowest version of that maybe. And then in James, who's a, somewhat a buddy of Paul's, he's a pastor in Jerusalem, we're actually gonna talk in a moment about the church that he pastored. He said, you humbly welcome the implanted word which is able to save you. So what does it mean to welcome the word of God like Paul says here? It's to receive it with joy, to receive it with an honor that's given to it, and to receive it with a level of humility. And all of this makes sense when you look at the ancient world like hospitality practices. When you welcome someone over to your house, it wasn't just kind of like, you know, I made dinner for you. You would literally be saying, for the time being, as long as I am hosting you, you are the master of the house, I am the servant. So that saying is, uh, let, you know, my house is your house. Is, is not just simply a way of being like, you know, feel free to take your shoes off. It's anything in the house. There's nothing in this, in this building that is not at your disposal. And so anything you need from me as the host or from this house, this all belongs to you. And so there's, 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 that's the humility of it. All of this is belonging to you. I'm, I'm, as a, I'm receiving you with a posture of servanthood. And it's honoring you that I want to do that for you because of who you are. And then it's also joy. You're excited to do it, to have them in your home. So Paul uses this metaphor of hospitality and like a, wet, like a welcome guest coming in when he thinks about the way that they Welcome the word of God in their midst. He goes, you, were, you joyfully received the scriptures. You received it with an honor that you gave to it in humility. And in the same way that a good guest withholds nothing from their, or a good host, excuse me, a good host withholds nothing from their guest, you, you withheld nothing from the scriptures. You withheld nothing from the gospel as we proclaimed it to you. There wasn't a, Paul, you can talk about this, but don't talk about that. There wasn't a, we're here to hear you when you, you know, Paul are encouraging in this way, but not in that way, which is exactly what he says. He continues, you welcomed it, what? Not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God. Not as a human word, but as the word of God. You see, to welcome the gospel as, or the scriptures, whatever language you want to use for the word of God, to receive it as a human message is to always sit in the position of authority of I get to, at the end of the day, pick and choose what I like and what I don't like. So I read over it, Sabbath practice, that sounds cool. Fasting, yeah, not so much, right? Oh man, the care for the poor, that, I love that. Sexual ethic of the church, or the scriptures, not so much, right? Oh, the dignity given to all human bearers, and oh, the universal call to obedience in Jesus. Oh, that one, not so much. You see, the picking and choosing, and we all, you all have your own little nuanced ways that we do that but we all have some way in which we're receiving the word of God as a human message. And Paul's celebration, what he identifies as the mark of the model, genuine believer, is the one who says, I receive all of it because I receive it as the word of God. This is language of authority. We've talked about tradition and now we're talking about authority. You guys are gonna run me out of here today. I'm just kidding, but honestly. Authority and tradition. And but with the authority piece here, is what he's saying is there, there wasn't a picking and choosing. You received it all. St. Augustine would later write in The City of God, 
If you believe what you don't like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Such a great quote. And this is what Paul's getting at. As he's going, when, when you came, you didn't put yourselves in as using the gospel as a mirror for your own self-acceptance. You allowed the gospel to bring a message of, yes, grace and forgiveness, but also transformation and, and, and honestly to pull you in directions that you'd rather not go. So, so the simple question is, when you are receiving and welcoming the word of God, are there parts that you like to welcome and parts that you close the door on? I, I think of, you know, honestly, the age of my kids right now, the way that some of you like invite me over to your home, you know, you kind of like wait at the door for like me or maybe just Aaron to come through and the rest of us are on the way and then like close the door and lock it, right? How would that work to divide the Smith family? Like Aaron would be like, I know my kids are messy and loud and I know Ryan is even messier and louder and yet you, you don't get Aaron without the rest of the family. Like we come as a, a, a package. We come as a unit working together. And so in the same way, to welcome the, the family of the scriptures, to receive every command. Now, do hear me though, in welcoming this, this is not Paul calling for like a blind faith of just receiving any passerby on the street, you know, come on in, like, you know, help yourself to whatever you want, like assuming that they're trustworthy. This is why in um, Acts chapter 17, right after Paul leaves the church in Thessalonica, um, there's another moment where this church is doing the same thing. It says they are welcoming the word of God and it pairs it with it by saying, and they examine the scriptures every single day to see if it was in accordance with the scriptures. So welcoming the word of God as authority, welcoming the word of God as the, God, the whole package deal of all that the scriptures carry does not mean I'm just kind of like signing off on it before we get into it. Welcoming is examining it. And so the whole thing is just whether or not we're willing to examine with a posture of receptivity and welcome or one of exclusion and looking for how we can resist what we, you know, what's the bare minimum that we can get as opposed to the full thing. This is one of the great things that I got from my, one of my professors talking about what does it mean to welcome the word of God is um, he just would regularly talk about welcoming the word of God is not simply just something that like, I listen to it. It actually is the way that I engage with the difficult questions. It's from a posture of hospitality. In receiving this as the word of God, it also at the same time is a word of humans. It's inspired. And so I need hospitality to slow down and to listen and to see what the scriptures are up to. And then from that place, accepting it and receiving it. And so again, talking about our de-churching moment, you know, we talked about receiving the word of God and that being kind of rooted to some of our biblical illiteracy. And, and this, welcoming the word of God, the challenge here is just we live in an age that has been so fundamentally shaped by the, the autonomous self, the fully, like the authority, that you are the authority of yourself. And so you can't help, honestly, but to read the scriptures and go, well, I don't believe with that. And so I'll just leave that behind. But part of welcoming the word of God is to receive a new, just a way of receptivity and a posture before the scriptures. That's one of willing obedience and joy and humility. And again, for some of you that are investigating, this is not like sign on the dotted line right now, right here. Like I said, part of welcoming is examining, seeing if it's true. But then there will come a moment and a time where to become a believer is now to walk in a posture of welcome, honor, humility, and joy. How are we doing so far? 
Okay, great. So this is the cool thing, though. It's for those who receive and welcome the word of God, he says, that you received it as the, um, you welcomed it, not as a human message, as it tru- but as it truly is, the word of God, which then he says, which also works effectively in you who believe. In you believers, the whole thing, we're building all this around. Who is a believer? It is a person whom God is effectively at work within as they are receiving and welcoming his word. A believer, at, at the base, like what this passage is saying, the believer is someone whose God's word is at work within. Very simple. But this is what he's getting at. How do you know a believer? Ask about their relationship to the word, which is gonna lead to all kinds of questions about their, their relationship to the church and their relationships to their obedience to Jesus. But it, it all goes back to ask questions about how do they receive and do they welcome? Do they see themselves as a contributing part of the tradition of the gospel and as a, in a receptive posture to God's authority as given through the scriptures. It works effectively in you who believe. Now, what are the works that he's thinking of? He likely is calling back to mind what he said in the beginning of chapter one, where he talked about your work of faith, your labor of love and your steadfast, your endurance of hope. He's saying that the word of God brings about that kind of love, that kind of faith, that kind of hope. He could also be referring to stuff like the fruit of the spirit, the growth of holiness, all of those things he might be kind of winking at or looking over at, but he actually tells us the kind of work that the word produces in verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So again, this is why the tradition aspect is so connected. Those who enter into a relationship with the word of God in this way become little mirrors and representatives of one another. They imitate one another. Whereas if you go to a church that is receiving and welcoming the scriptures, it's going to in some ways be very different, but in some ways very similar to another church that's receiving and welcoming the scriptures. And that's what Paul's trying to do here, specifically by naming the churches that are in Judea, that is in and around Jerusalem, is he's bringing their attention back to kind of the mother church, for lack of a better expression. When, when Pentecost came and the church blew, 3,000 people you know, get baptized in one day, the church that was in and around Judea, is the, that's it. And then from there, all these other churches go out and get planted. So when Paul says, you guys are just like the church in Judea, it's like, how could you do better than that? Like, you know, you know where it all started? You guys are just like that church. Super encouraging. You're imitating them. When I look at you, it's like I'm looking at the, the, the mama church. I'm looking at the, the, the place where it all started. I'm looking at the, the original. But his imitation that he thinks of is in particular, he says, the churches that are in Judea since it's an imitation in their suffering. Which this is the, I just, this is the moment where like, what does it mean to be a believer? Oh, receiving the word of God, welcoming the word of God. Yes, and suffering for it. In particular, he calls to mind the fact that they had suffered the same things, which we'll get to in a moment, from people of your own country. So let me just read it all, and then we're going to unpack it all. Okay. Since you have also suffered the same things from people of your country, that is your Thessalonian neighbors, just as they, that is the church that's in Judea, did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles, that is non-Jewish nations, so that they may be saved. As a result, they're constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. Okay, deep breath for a moment. 
because this is, this is part of um, hospitality in the way that we read the scriptures, is slowing down to see what's going on here. Because in an immediate reading, some of you would go, look at this anti-Semite. Look at the way that he's talking about the Jews. Like, come on, like that, right? Like this, it, it immediately brings up some of those questions. So let's just slow down. Let's answer this and come back to then seeing what Paul's getting at. So first, whatever else Paul is saying here cannot be anti-Semitism. One, your, your buddy is, is Jewish. He's writing this as a Jewish person. Then he lists talking about Messiah Jesus, who is also Jewish. He's writing this, celebrating the faithfulness of Jewish believers in Judea. And the Thessalonians, many of them receiving this letter, would have been Jewish themselves. So whatever Paul's getting at, we just have to first go, okay, it can't be ethnicity. And this is where I, the verse, remember, Paul didn't go, <clears throat> verse 15, who killed, right? There's, he didn't do verse numbers. So this was all one continual thing. And so the problem comes with translations that do a comma after Jews at the end of verse 14, or that just reading that, that verse break too strongly. Because what it, sound, it can sound like is either um, the same thing they suffered from the Jews, you know, those, the, the people that did all this stuff to Jesus, as opposed to the Jews, you know, the specific ones who killed Jesus, the specific ones who killed Stephen and the prophets at the early church in Jerusalem, you know, the guys that are persecuting us, and this is the really fun part, Paul goes, you know, the guys that I used to be a part of. So Paul, for those of you that don't know, before he was a pastor, before he was a church planner, he was part of this crew persecuting the churches in Judea, arresting them and dragging them off to be killed. And he had an incredible transformation of Jesus, experiencing him. And so when he's talking about this crew, this is not about every single Jewish person, and neither is it, um, he's speaking about it as someone who's, he's, I've been a part of the crew. I know what's motivating that team. I know I was there. I was one of them. And so part of what he's doing here then of like why is he saying this is I think two, three, two or three things. Maybe we'll start with two and we'll see if the third one comes together. The, the first thing that he's doing is one, just remember, is he is first encouraging the Thessalonian church here that their reception of the word of God is genuine. That, that they have an, a true work of God happening within them because, and this is where he's gonna get in the beginning of chapter three, when we go through affliction, particularly cultural pressure in the midst of us following after Jesus, the temptation can be to think, I must not be thinking or believing the right thing. I must have it wrong. Or even worse, knowing the fact that some of these Jewish peoples were carrying their Old Testament scrolls with them as they were going after the church, they might be worrying that maybe we are on the wrong side of this thing. So Paul's encouraging them by saying, look, what you're going through is not just what the Judean church went through. What you're going through is also what Jesus went through when he was killed. It's what Stephen and the rest of the early church prophets went through. It's what we, me, writing this, I have gone through. Thessalonian church, you guys are in good company. He's trying to normalize the tension that they feel with their Thessalonian neighbors. In many ways, what he's trying to do here just, just mirrors exactly what Jesus does at the, um, at the end of his Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says um, in Matthew chapter five, you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you 
and they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. Your reward is great in heaven. Here, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who are before you. So notice Jesus says there is a blessing in the cultural pressures to aligning with me, to receiving my word. And, and the way that he reminds that is, hey, look at the prophets of the Old Testament. And so it's almost like Paul is doing the same thing. Hey, what you're going through, the pressures that you're feeling, that he's just trying to normalize the challenge, the affliction of what they're experiencing. Now, we're going to talk about this when we get to chapter 3, because he goes a little bit deeper on this affliction stuff, just identifying and coming to terms with the fact that there are multiple forms of power, and what the Thessalonian church and the Judean churches were suffering from was a particular cultural pressure and affliction that came in the form of what's hard power, is what sociologists refer to. Um, ours is far more one of soft power, so not one of like, don't go to church. It's like, we're going to give you 100 other things to do instead of going to church, Right? So it's far more a distraction than a denouncement, but the denouncement is still there just as much. But we're gonna get there in a few weeks. That's the first thing that he's just trying to do though. Paul's trying to normalize, you guys are really suffering and that doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. It means you're right in the middle of where you're supposed to be. But the second thing that he's trying to do is he's trying to talk by pointing to the fact they displease God. They're, they're, they're building up, adding to this you know, wrath pile apparently that is now coming after them is what he's trying to do is he's, he's linking to something that would have been common because it shows up in all of the, almost all, it's over and over again in the letters of the New Testament, which is this quote from um, Deuteronomy, which is, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And the primary way that that passage was utilized in the early church was as guidance for non-retaliation to the suffering that they received so that they wouldn't return in kind. They would be able to say, hey, look at all these people treating us. And remember, the Thessalonian church most likely has people that have been murdered for their faith. Very tempting to take up the sword in revenge. And what he's trying to say to them is, God sees, God knows, and God not only is going to do something about them, apparently there is some number that they are building on the scale towards. And, it's, and, and what he says is, and now they've, they've, they've flipped over. He's trying to comfort them. You don't need to take up the sword into your hands to defend yourselves. God sees, God knows, and God is going to do something about it. And what he seems to be saying is God already has. So he's just comforting them. It really is, in the midst of a church that's going through suffering, he's going, you guys are in a long line of faithfulness to Jesus. You guys are in a long line of those who have received and welcomed the word of God and then were ostracized for it. And so don't, don't worry that this is the wrath of God. Don't worry that this means that you're on the outside. This means that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You guys are holding on. You're doing good work. So to bring, um, well, let's see. We have all that. We bring this together. Yeah, so then, okay, so then let, let's end where it ends. Where, do we go, where, where is the Thessalonian church meant to go from here? Specifically, Paul's language that there's this particular crew of people in Thessalonica that are doing cultural pressures. And Paul says that they now exist within a place of being underneath the wrath of God. <laughs> Guys, tradition, authority, wrath of God. Oh, and, and anti-Semitism in the scriptures. So we're just having a great Sunday. I'm so, if this is your first Sunday, just a great day. Um, so Paul addresses particularly the wrath of God, which is what he's saying, that there is a counting number at which rejection to the word of God, resistance to the word of God, continues to build up a, a particular trajectory for one's life. 
And so what he's saying is he's, he's reminding them, looking at this community, looking at their neighbors going, this is where they've committed, this is where they're going. And he's doing this primarily to contrast with the work that God is doing in them. So the W's in English is helpful, but Paul's, Paul's showing this difference between those who resist the word of God and it ends in wrath and those who receive the word of God and it ends in God working powerfully within them. There's these like two kinds of people that he's setting before them. But the whole point is for those that receive the word of God, how did they get from one camp to the other and how should they treat those who have given themselves over to the trajectory of wrath? Well, first, we've got to do a little bit of stuff on wrath. Um, N.T. Wright writes in uh, his commentary on this passage when on specifically this wrath being added up to the limit. He says, God's anger is never reactionary or malevolent. When humans reject him and behave in ways that undermine his wise and generous designs for them and the world, he does not instantly punish, but allows space for repentance, space to receive, space to welcome. If this does not happen though, the wickedness builds up, sin accumulates until the point where God must say enough and he brings things to an end. And so the whole point of what Paul's going to actually develop throughout the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians is there is a time coming when God will finally say enough. And, and, and most of us are, are kind of okay with that when we look out at the world and particular other maybe groups or people or individuals. There's like so-and-so at work and you're like building up for the wrath, right? And you feel that. And just the reality is you are human too. We are human too. And there's a, from Genesis chapter three, resistance to the word of God that is present within us, that we need to be saved from, a trajectory towards wrath. And so Paul, in, in reminding them here, talking about the wrath of God here, his whole point is he's also reminding them of what he said back in chapter one, verse nine and 10. He says, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, repentance, and now you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised for the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So how, how do we relate to a world that's bound for wrath, a world that's constantly filling up God's, not malevolent or capricious anger, but his counted, committed response to justice? The response, Paul is saying here, is you keep on receiving you keep on welcoming, and you, as he says in here, keep on speaking. Just because those are persecuting you, those that are giving this oppression towards you may have wrath hanging over their heads is one way that you can translate that passage. There is a savior who is coming to deal expressly with that wrath. And so no matter what your neighbor has said, no matter what your neighbors have done, there is, as long as there is breath in their lungs, an invitation into a life where the work of God becomes now the thing that you live and breathe within rather than the wrath of God hanging over your head. Where the hope of Jesus' return becomes the thing that you wake up every single day with rather than movement towards God's return and his judgment. And so this is Paul's hard word that he has for us is to consider if this is genuinely, it all comes down to this. Two trajectories, one towards the work of God and hope, one towards the wrath of God and judgment. And the primary indicator is, do I as an image bearer receive the word of my creator or reject and resist it? And immediately this letter that's written 
2,000 years ago, 50 AD, immediately speaks to, it's a moment for you not to vet your potential dates of who you know, identifies as a Christian, but for your own heart. Do I have a posture of receiving the word of God or am I resistant to it? Have I received the gospel as a tradition to live within or do I believe that this is a a Lego ship that I could build for myself? Am I receiving and welcoming the word of God with joy and honor and humility or am I picking and choosing? And am I willing to receive the cultural just challenges? This isn't a martyrdom mindset where every, every, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're like, it's because I'm a Christian. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> but am I willing to receive the, what Ronald Rollheiser calls the moral loneliness of being a follower of Jesus in the midst of a culture that resists him? And so these are the, this, these are the questions. Because remember, the whole thing here is about not just receiving Jesus as the one who saves us from the coming wrath, but the one that we follow. The one who is the word of God. And so that's why we're receiving. The one who is, like this is what we're going after. And so the simple question out of a passage like this is just around those three verbs. If I identify as a believer, or maybe if I want to and I'm thinking about what it looks like, what is my relationship to the word of God? Am I receiving it? Welcoming it? And am I willing to suffer, to feel that tension because of it? Let's pray.